This is Continuum Drag, a weekly podcast for visiting television, sci-fi, fantasy, and everything in between. This week, The Langoliers, Part 1. But it doesn't hold up, you know. What? This scenario I just gave you, it doesn't hold up. But you just said. What I said was, if it were just this plane, I could give you a scenario. But unfortunately, it's not just this plane. The city of Denver is probably still down there, but all its lights were off if it was. And it's not just Denver, I can tell you that. Omaha, Des Moines, St. Louis, there isn't a trace of any of them down there either. Now what has happened has not just happened on this plane. And that's where deduction breaks down. Welcome to a Halloween Continuum Drag, the podcast that terrorizes you at 20,000 feet. I'm Spooky Lukey, here with my co-host, 40 Wax with an Axe, it's Lizzie Jordan. What's real, Jordan? Lizzie, oh, I get it, that's not bad. At first I was like, Lizzie Jordan. Lizzie Borden, 40 Wax with an Axe. Hey, I got it. Well, what's uh, Jane's name? Yeah, I need a spooky name. Well, we are joined this week for this Halloween episode by returning guest, Jane, the criminally insane. Awesome. Love it. Thank you. <laughs> Jane, welcome back. Thanks. It's really great to be back, guys. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been it's been a little bit here. And I mean, usually around the Halloween times, we like to do a spooky movie. And uh, this year, we're doing one that you have been requesting uh, probably since we started this podcast. <laughs> yep. I, I believe that's correct, is that as soon as I visited the podcast the first time, I started harassing you guys to do this show, which I literally hadn't seen since I was a kid, but was obs- like, I just had so many memories of being obsessed with the idea of this show. <laughs> and I, and I, I sort of, I, ca- I can't really explain enough how much it affected me as a kid when I watched it. But anyway, we can, um, We'll go into it. We'll get into it, I guess. Uh, the show is, or the TV movie is, I guess it's a miniseries, The Langoliers. Two parts. We're watching part one today, part two next week. And, uh, of course, if you don't know, uh, Langoliers is from the deranged mind of Stephen <laughs> King. Is that how they advertise it? I don't know. That's how I'm advertising it. They advertised it in a way that somehow just gripped my 13-year-old self. So, uh, can I can I talk a little bit about, like, the build-up to Yeah, let's to talk this? about what we know individually about this before we go into it. Okay, how about you guys go first? Sure. I have definitely seen this, uh, but I think I watched it probably when I either rented a lot of movies or worked at a video store. It was like a two-cassette thing I remember taking home and watching this at some point. I don't have any strong memories of it, but I do know I've watched it. And I'm pretty sure I've also read the novella. Jordan? All I know about this is Jane kept saying we had to watch it, and... At one point, I had watched maybe five, ten minutes of this and said, this is the worst thing I've seen. And I turned it <laughs> off and then never went back. And I'm the reason we haven't watched it till now. I know, because I I kept asking and Luke was like, I'm okay with it. But Jordan really doesn't want to watch it. So the thing about the Langoliers is that they somehow managed to create a, an anticipation campaign around the airing of this that just hooked me as a kid. So, or as like a young teen, I guess, because I was at this age where I was obsessed with television. I was watching as much TV as I could get my hands on. I was watching a ton of sci-fi. I was I was obsessed with the X-Files. I think it was still right around the same time where they had like rebooted The Outer Limits and they were, you know, there was this huge explosion of science fiction on TV. And I think this was, a, I think it was ABC that... Um, that aired this. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So there were these commercials for the airing of the show that somehow, like I looked them up on YouTube recently because we were going to be doing this and they were doing this countdown. They're so cheesy. They're terrible, terrible commercials. You can find them on YouTube. Countdown, three days left until the most terrifying, you know, thing ever, whatever. (laughs) Um, And I don't know what it was, but I just, I was so excited for it. I remember I wrote it down in like my little agenda, like my little school book agenda of the day that it was airing and I taped it. Um, And it was, at least the first half, and I remember when I originally watched it, was one of the the scariest things that I thought I had ever seen. Now, (laughs) 
to well i can't wait to get to this first to be half fair then. i ha- did not watch a lot of scary aside from some episodes of the x-files i didn't really watch a lot of scary stuff and i didn't have a wide exposure to horror um your stories. palettes were were being refined they were so. they were and and this was definitely kind of my first ever experience with an empty world story which i think has a lot to do with why i found it so terrifying an empty world is always fairly evocative to the mind, I suppose. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, it isn't now. Like, it's it's kind of boring now and it just sort of feels cheap whenever... I, I mean, I, I feel that way whenever I see a story that's an empty world story. I'm just like, oh, they just didn't pay for extras and, you know, <laughs> shot at night. Luke, you just love people with disabilities that also have magical powers, right? <laughs> I mean, that's a Stephen King <laughs> I know, isn't it? It's so funny. You're just like, well, I know who wrote this. Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, he has some tropes he loves to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but anyway, so I that's why I was like so... And I had literally had not seen this since probably it originally aired and I taped it and maybe rewatched it a couple of times. So I really didn't know what to expect when I kept insisting to you guys that we watch this. All I remembered was that I thought it was scary and awesome. Um, and so like when 13 year old Jane yeah, was, had been freaked out when Jordan kept saying it was terrible, I was like, Shaw, <laughs> Jordan, that can't be right. You're just a grumpy old man. Yeah. Um, well, p- part of that's true. Both can be true. They, yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I, so all, I, all of this is to say, um, perhaps I should apologize. <laughs> Vance. That's all right. I think no, it's no, going to no. be fun to talk about. I actually think you might come down, but I think I've come up a little bit. I think we might have similar feelings now. Oh, good. Okay, so we'll oh, you guys are Benjamin Buttoning. Mm-hmm. You're going to meet in the middle. That's right. Okay, cool. So that's the back my backstory of the Langoliers. That's great. Yeah. That's great. It's funny. I did end up watching a few when I'm trying to find this on YouTube. There are all kinds of like, you know, entertainment now specials or like what's coming up this week on ABC. Like new, like that's on like the local news where they'll have like behind the scenes interviews with uh, all the cast being like, "You're not going to believe this movie." <laughs> Well, it was a big push. They did a huge press push for this, which I guess they probably did for a lot of their TV movies because it was they put. But you can you can see it, we can talk about it as it comes. They actually did put a lot of money into this for a TV movie, so I think that's probably why they pushed it so hard. Well, let me get into a little bit of background for everybody. Uh, this premiered May fourteenth to May fifteenth on in nineteen ninety five on ABC. It was written and directed by Tom Holland. Spider-Man himself, one year before he was born. <laughs> right. What else did this director do? Do you know? I do, actually. He was the writer of Psycho 2, and then he'd <laughs> go on to write and direct Child's Play and Fright Night. Wow. Yeah, he was a legit horror guy. And so ABC was probably like, this is awesome. We have this great horror director that's going to come and do our movie. Yeah, I actually was just like, oh, this guy must have seen like a real get because I assumed this would be directed by, and I don't know if you guys will know this name, but Mick Jarvis, who seemed to do all of Stephen King's TV adaptations. Oh. Hmm. Uh, he's, he did like the Shining version on the TV. He's done a whole bunch of TV stuff. And like, whenever I think of a Stephen King TV movie, like I do think of like, just a, like a really low to middling quality adaptation, which for some reason was very popular in like that 90s period where everyone's just like, you know what would work well on TV? Stephen King novels? Well, there are just so many. Yeah. I, I guess this probably isn't true for television, but he always has his list of like things he'll sell for a dollar to like film students or young people. But he's he's not known to charge a great deal for his rights, I think, generally speaking, or at least didn't didn't at the time because he just has so hundreds of, of properties. So I think that was also part of it. People were just like, oh, we'll just do a Stephen King. There's so many. I don't think he cares about the quality of what is made he's just like yeah sure go for it i don't care yeah because it doesn't affect his reputation at all no it's just free money for stephen king Mm. um jordan and this is maybe just for you here but there's also a a continuum drag all-star involved in this is there the producer david r caps okay he produced the dune miniseries as well (laughs) oh so a few years later yeah yeah this guy was really into adapting books into tv (laughs) that's his thing so so quality um and of course, as I like to do, what was going on on Earth when this show was out, Jordan? In 1995. On May 14th, the day that this uh, this particular show we're going to watch, this first half premiered, the Dalai Lama proclaimed a six-year-old boy the reincarnation of the Panchan Lama, which is the second in command to the Dalai Lama. Isn't he currently held captive somewhere? Am I wrong? He's in... I just to say isolation. It's not isolation. Exile. The Dalai Lama or the Panchan Lama? The Panchan. Uh, you're almost right. Because what I read is 
two or three days after he proclaimed this six-year-old was the reincarnation, China kidnapped him and disappeared him, and he's never been seen. Okay, since. Okay, so I was right. Oh, I didn't. He's know not that. in exile. He's gone. He's been he's been reassigned. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, he's been reassigned. Um, I was like, whoa, what a grim fate for that six-year-old. Who knows? Maybe he's doing well. Yeah, it seems likely. <laughs> Is this all that was happening in the world? There's got to be something else, Luke. No, that was the only thing of note for these two days. Jeez. I was going to say, Luke, we have a lot of Chinese money coming into this podcast, so maybe they just uh, be positive about it. (laughs) I wish we had a lot of money coming to this podcast. So it was a very tame time in the world. Not a lot was going on. Everyone was just kind of happy. According to Luke, nothing was happening in the world at this time. They were just watching TV, consuming things. Wait, what year is it? 1995? We were hacky sacking. We were um, taking those wristband things and slapping yeah. those on our wrist. Uh, we're like boogieing with Bill Clinton. Is that what yeah, we were Yeah, we were boogieing with Bill Clinton. Yeah, All yeah. Right. All right. You guys love that period of time, huh? <laughs> you know what? It, it, it was good. It was good. Nothing bad happened. And, you know, there was a lot of really good television. So you wanted to say? watch Langoliers. You just pop your VC back in the VCR, watch it again a couple times, get the tracking just right. It was perfect. We also have two series that the Continuum Drag team here has watched that were on during uh, during Langoliers. Mm. Jordan, can you guess? Uh, was Tech War on? Absolutely, Tech War. And the other one would be... What else? Oh, um, uh, Space Rangers? Close. Uh, Earth 2. Earth 2. Wow, Earth 2 was 95. Yeah, yeah. It's running in contemporaneously with Tech War. Hmm. Tech War looks really bad comparatively, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into it, guys. Here's the IMDb summary for The Langoliers, part one. Most of the passengers on an airplane disappear, and the remainder land the plane at a mysteriously barren airport. And that was courtesy of Crow underscore Steve. (laughs) Hold on. It's Crow underscore Steve. So you think his real name is Steve Crow? Oh, good question. That's kind of a cool name. When you go into witness protection, you can take Steve Crow. It sounds like a like an ABC TV show about a doctor or something, but they'd call it Crow. <laughs> Anyways, m- moving on. <laughs> well, I mean, to get into this episode, I've had to try to think about how to break into this because, like, let's say at the top, there are a lot of characters on this show. <laughs> it's very, very sort of basically written, like, set up this character, set up that character. They're all arriving at the airport independently, having their own little setup moments which is very dull but what i like about it is for the viewer later on maybe 10 15 minutes maybe it's even a longer 20 minutes down the line we have a scene where they all just sit around together and they all introduce each other so in case you haven't caught who they are they are like hey by the way i'm i'm Susie, i'm johnny and whatever there are so many repetitive things in this script where people say the same thing over and over or discover something that we have viewers as viewers have already known for like the last 20 minutes it's really frustrating in the spirit of that later scene where everyone sits down and introduces themselves properly, what I'm going to do is I'm going to work our way through a little bit of the first act before we break out into like just talking about this like litany of characters because Lord knows when you adapt a book into a TV show, you don't want to lose a single thing that was in that book. You make an interesting point though, Luke, because as a viewer, and maybe it's not entirely fair in 2020 watching something from 1995 to make the criticism, but as soon as you start watching it, you think, there's too many characters here. Like, you could blend two of these characters together. It's not like they're so three-dimensional and so interesting that you couldn't put two of these together. It almost becomes a, a hindrance in, in terms of the weight because you're like, well, we each got to give each of these 45 characters a scene. Well, let's start off. It, it begins at LAX, and this is a very pre-9-11 at airport. <laughs> People are just wandering through security, walking their friends to gates to catch their flights. Nobody seems to care at all. Great time to live. Yeah, unless you were the Dalai Lama's thing. Yeah, unless you were the... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, We're going to follow the uh, flight, American Pride Flight 29, destined for Boston. Um, It's taken off from LAX. It's got to fly through, unfortunately, some unusually occurring Aurora Borealis along the way. And uh, what kind of happens here is we'll see a few of the characters board. The plane takes off. and, And shortly after takeoff... All of our lead characters kind of drift off to nap time. Well, it is a red eye. So let's be fair. It's reasonable for people to be sleeping. To have a little little nap. Yeah. And 
this is kind of what where the show really gets going is this plane takes off we find out it's going to fly through this unusual weather occurrence and they're going to have to now band together as they wake up to discover the mystery that's happening um so let's introduce these characters now that we kind of know how they're going to how they're getting to where they're going to get to these people are going to wake up stranded together there's captain brian angle played by david morris Mm -hmm. love david morris he is not the pilot of this plane, but he had just landed in, in L.A., I guess, flying a different plane. And there's this weird thing where he's just like, wow, that pressure leak that we had landing, we almost all turned into human pate. And I was just like, wait, 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 what happened? But they never go back to it. <laughs> I think that was – I was wondering about that too. I was wondering if it would come back up again later. I only watched the first ep- the first half, so maybe it comes back in the second half. But – because it wasn't in the first half, I thought, oh, maybe they're just trying to illustrate that he's an experienced pilot and that he knows. He knows how to get you out of a dangerous yeah. situation. And of course, upon landing in L.A., he's informed that his ex-wife has died in a fire and he must head out to Boston to, I don't know, I guess, deal with her estate. He doesn't seem that broken up about his ex-wife. He sort of seems like disturbed for a moment. And then the guy, the guy who told him is like, are you OK, sir? And he's like, yes, I'm fine. And then he he's just-, just a stoic, though. It's not his fault. <laughs> I don't. I was trying to figure out how he felt about his ex-wife. Like that would be sort of an opportunity for us to find out in an inter- like sort of interesting way, what his situation is. Like, did he divorce his ex-wife? Did she divorce him? Was he still in love with her? Obviously, there's no child because he didn't seem concerned at all for for a kid. But like, there was no information. This this is what is sort of a constant issue with this show, is that in both the writing and the direction. There's nothing that goes below the surface, even though there's opportunities to be like, oh, what what can we learn about this guy, David Morse? But this is a plot-driven show. You can tell that no one in this is terribly interested in developing these characters, and that's not the point. It's, we're going to drop these, you know, for lack of a better word, these trope characters, and then just let them go through this scenario. It's not about developing them at all. No, I, I know, but it just it's such an obvious moment where just even the actor on the day could just decide to do something a little bit more interesting and maybe he did and the director was like no just be stoic i don't know i mean who knows what happened pull it back man pull it back he should have just started laughing hysterically and he'd be like <laughs> wow he's a psycho and then at least we could have been suspicious that he was somehow involved in the conspiracy mm. i mean that's the other thing right it's, anyway i also had that question too i'm just like what's your ex-wife does she, are, does she have no other family why does your why does the ex-husband have to go deal with this Literally, the guy says to him, I'm, and we can't nitpick this show like this for the whole time because it'll take five hours. But the, the staff member who tells David Morse about his dead wife says, sir, I have some news about your wife. And David Morse looks confused for literally like eight seconds. He's like, my, my wife? What? Oh, you mean my ex-wife? Like it, it did not <laughs> occur to him who the person was talking about. For eight seconds. He's got a lot of wives, man. He's a pilot. He's got a different family in every city. I just feel like everything just moved extra slow. Like it was just it was just this very slow cognitive process. In the interest of not going slow ourselves, let's move on to the next character. There's Nick Hopewell. Do you guys know who this is? He's a junior attache to the British embassy. Or is he a government hitman? I wasn't sure. Was that him at the beginning? I couldn't really tell. Yeah, at the beginning, he's in a car with another person that we don't know who right. he is. And he's sort of being given a mission to like maybe kill a woman or something like that. And he has to do it within the next 24 hours. He's James Bond. Yeah. And the guy's like, I'll see you in London and we'll have a pint together. <laughs> um, so yeah, he's some kind of spy. Which he's sort of he, spy he admits to pretty much right away. As soon as people start asking, introducing themselves on the plane, he basically says he's a spy. Well, also once he starts doing that Vulcan nose hold on people. <laughs> I mean, that's his other character trait is unusually for these kind of shows. The tough guy hitman, huge science fiction fan. We got to get him on the show, man. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I just I was just sort of like, that's clearly the director being like, hey, everybody. We like science fiction, right? That's why we're watching this on TV, right? Let's just put in a... And and then he doesn't even do the Vulcan neck thing, which is not a real thing. And I'm sorry, Jordan. I know you're about to like be really disappointed. The Vulcan neck pinch doesn't do anything. I mean, but it does in the universe of, of Star Trek. But it doesn't in the universe of the Langoliers, which is why he doesn't do it. Instead, he grabs the guy and does a nose hold. So dumb. I just like that that we're supposed to be on this character's side, I assume. But at first I was like, well, he's just a bully. 
Like, that wasn't the way to solve the problem, was just by both violence. Am I, am I wrong? He's an alpha male, Jordan. You gotta use violence. We haven't explained to the, to the listeners of this show about Bronson Pinchot's character yet. So. Well, let's get to him then. The man that Nick Hopewell is bullying is Craig Toomey, played by Bronson Pinchot from Jordan. I'm sure one of your favorites. Perfect Strangers. I loved it. Um, He's bulky. And he is, I guess, playing some sort of powerful investment banker of some sort. He's like evil businessman. That's all you need to know. He, his character could not be more of like a 1980s villain trope. But it's so it's so annoying. All he does is sort of yell incomprehensibly at people um, in complete with a complete lack of logic. He's he yelled, also sweaty. He's super sweaty. He, his eye, <laughs> he looks like death warmed over because his eyes have these like dark brown rings around them and they are like red and he's sweating and he's like his clothes are too tight. Um, but all he does is yell. So when, he, when yeah. he got grabbed in a nose hold, I was like, just knock him out already. But I mean, and then he just yelled for the entire rest of the episode. Like it was the most annoying thing. He's at 10 all the time. All the time. And the director wants him to be at 10 because he's constantly being filmed in extreme close-up with a wide-angle lens just yelling for yeah. like in a way that just doesn't even make any sense for a person to yell. What we get to know about him is he arrives at the airport in a limo, and as he gets out, like some dude from the office just also like has driven <laughs> to the airport to ask him about the $43 million worth of bonds that he has lost. Yeah, this is before cell phones, so he had to chase chase him down. And he's on his way to Boston to meet the board of directors about this, like, massive loss of money. But what we'll kind of learn about him is he probably gets the most backstory because we get flashbacks to his childhood. He was raised by, like, a wealthy, domineering father and kind of forced into this career he hates as this investment banker. So he's actually lost this money on purpose to sabotage his own career. But in these flashbacks, this is where we get the name of the series is his father used to threaten him as a child that if he was a lazy bum, quote, um, <laughs> the Langoliers would come and eat him up. And yeah. eat him alive. And it would be painful and terrible. This father is mentally ill. Like this father has a strange, bizarre delusion that has affected him his entire life. I, I mean, I'm extrapolating here. This is not what they say on the show. But the father is so extreme also just yells in close-up constantly to his like six-year-old son in these flashbacks about the Langoliers and is very, very specific about how the Langoliers are going to come and they eat up lazy people. And if he gets another bee, he's going to be eaten alive by the Langoliers in pain. The father never actually describes what Langoliers are. He just says Langoliers and they'll eat you. So you assume as a viewer or reader or whatever it is, that there's some sort of monster creature personification of something, but we never, he's not like, oh, because they're going to fly in because they're demons or something. No. I will give this abusive father credit for one thing. <laughs> Very imaginative to come up with the word Langoliers. Good for him. Well, that's why I make think up that word. He's, he's delusional. Like, I think this Langoliers is something that the father has invented in his own mind because it's so specific and so strange. Great name, though. I love that's the best part of this miniseries. I love just like saying Langolier. It is. It's a really good name. It's weird enough that it's it has a way of being frightening. Also, to give the abusive father credit, it does seem to work. I mean, he does become a businessman, which he wanted. I'm not saying that's true. It's not a good way, but I'm just saying it was an effective method. It was. He did force him into a career he hated. Yeah, yeah. That's what he wanted, and it worked. Yeah, but in addition to this Craig Toomey character being a high pressure sort of angry businessman. He also is in the process of undergoing some kind of nervous breakdown clearly, which has begun prior to um, prior to this whole. Incident. I think that's fair. He's on his way to commit career suicide. He's on yeah. his way to commit career suicide. And so he waffles between like stoicism and intensity. Um, he, like I, we were saying, he sweats a lot. He, he sort of, as, <laughs> as the situation begins to break down, he t starts to take pieces of paper and just rip them into strips in this almost like hypnotic, like, it's almost like he's, he's sitting there and like drooling and ripping the paper at the same time. Cause he's retreating into his own mind, but it's all over the place. Like the performance is all over the place. And I'm sure the direction was all over the place, but also just, so the character is just, the only way to describe him is that he's like in the throes of a massive breakdown because nothing makes logical sense in the way that he's behaving. 
I think a lot of the like details are probably left on the page of like his internal state because I vaguely remember that pa- paper tearing thing from the book and it is like there's a whole thing about it but you, can, you don't have time in a movie so now you just have a guy randomly tearing paper yeah do you remember what the thing was in the book about the paper it was just a coping mechanism I think that like from his abusive parent like the sound of the tearing like helped him like basically meditate oh, and like calm down but in the in the movie, it could it's just like, look at this crazy guy. He's crazy. <laughs> it's a funny quirk. Um, all right, let's keep going. There's Dinah Bellman, uh, the 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 Stephen King trope character that Jordan mentioned earlier. Yeah, she's blind. Blind little girl. <laughs> blind and prescient and slight and telepathic, empathic. Yeah, she's got the shining, baby. Yeah, she's, she's got, got the, the shining. shining. Yeah. Um, she's on her way to Boston to get a restorative sight surgery, and um, <laughs> because she has The Shining, though, and her blindness allows her to hear when people are lying, or also what their careers are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That woman talks, and she's just like, hey, you sound like a teacher. Yeah, that somebody's a teacher. It's uh, a very strange little quirk, but in a Stephen King thing, how could you not have this character? Mm-hmm. Let's keep going. Then there's Laura Stevenson, a teacher. Yep. She's going on her first vacation in eight years to meet a man who she met via personal ads. She's a lonely school teacher. What else is new? Yeah. What I like is when she finally reveals she's going to meet someone in personal ads, he's like, I'm going to meet a guy, Darren Crosby. I'm like, did I need to know his full name? Is that going to come up later? (laughs) But also, she is not following any kind of procedures to ensure her own safety and security. She didn't tell her friend what she was going to to boston for she didn't provide like any kind of information about where she was going to be when she was going to be in touch any of that kind of stuff like she could she's probably like walking into the arms of a mad cannibal yeah when she lands in boston she's definitely becoming a skin suit of some sort for sure and she didn't tell anyone how to find her it's a disaster waiting to happen she is lucky she found the sorora borealis let me tell you all right what about bob jenkins which one's bob He's the Stephen King stand-in, a mystery writer. The Dean Stockwell character. Yeah, yeah. And he keeps calling people dear boy and fellow like he's Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) You know, that Stephen King just just nailing it to the floor, like just in case you guys haven't caught on. Oh, gosh. In this this movie, all the characters have this problem, but he has the worst problem, is all his dialogue is like written overly verbose, verbosely, and it sounds like it's ripped out of a different, like, it's like someone took a novel but didn't adapt it to make it sound like anything. It's so unusual. Like, and it's not just him. It's sort of, it percolates Everyone into other people's dialogue. So he sort of teams up with this young man who Luke hasn't introduced yet, who's a, a violinist on his way to uh the berkeley school of music what's the guy's name albert costner I, before we move on hold okay. on he's next okay sorry um but i just want to say this about bob jenkins is when he introduces himself to the plane load of people his introduction is like hi i'm bob jenkins i've written over 40 novels and i was just like whoa weird flex in this crisis buddy <laughs> well i mean that's a lot it is a lot i assume that's how stephen king also introduces himself on flights Hi, I'm Stephen King. I've written 80,000 novels. Also, have you seen the two-parter Langoliers? Here's the thing. I bet you Stephen King doesn't know how many novels he's written. No, you're probably right. Um, All right, let's keep going. Uh, You mentioned Albert Costner, this young man who teams up with Bob Jenkins. Seems to be his little sidekick. Yeah, he becomes like the Watson to the Sherlock Holmes is what I put in my notes. But so then he, this this guy is like a university age, kid, like he's probably like 19 or whatever. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a, a violinist on the way to the Berkeley School of Music. But he also starts calling people fellow, like within about 20 minutes of this show starting, <laughs> he starts referring to other people as fellows as well. It, it just because he's been hanging out with Sherlock. Can Holmes. I mention one thing about Albert? The costume designer really nailed it because just so you know that he's into music, he's wearing a shirt that says Beethoven on it. I was like, oh, he must be into <laughs> classical music. Well done, everyone. The costume designer nailed a lot of things, which I'm sure we'll also get to when we introduce one of the next characters. What I liked about Albert Costner is... Everyone speaks to him and treats him like he is a child, and he's clearly a 30-year-old man. <laughs> They're like, it's someone who's like, hey, kid, go check the window. And I'm like, dude, that guy is like 32. <laughs> um, all right, let's keep going. There's a man named Don Gaffney, who uh, he claims to be a tool and die worker for aircraft mm-hmm. and is on his way to Boston to meet his first granddaughter. Do either of you remember even who that is? <laughs> 
I, I you know what he looks yeah. like, and I know he's a character actor that's been in a bunch of stuff. Okay, um, he is probably the second least used character, or possibly the first least used. He could be out of this movie. I would argue Rudy is the least used character. Which one's Rudy? I'll get to him. He's always hungry. That's all you need to know. Uh, All right, fine. We'll talk about Rudy now. (laughs) Rudy's the director. Rudy Warwick is my favorite character, actually. But I like that they all introduce himself and he's basically, they're like, I'm a teacher. I'm a musician. I'm a writer. He's like, I'm hungry. Well, that's not even true, Jordan. You know why? Why? (laughs) Because Rudy is asleep in first class for the majority of the movie. Nobody wakes him up. (laughs) That's true. He wakes up well after introductions are made. So he just wanders. He just wakes up and he's like, hey, everybody. Didn't you see a stewardess? I'm kind of hungry. And then press the oh, movie. Oh, that guy. Sorry, I was. There's another character that the director plays in this in this two parter, and I thought it was him, but it is not. It is not him. Okay. No, no, this guy is just a man in first class who is very hungry, <laughs> and was my favorite character because anytime they talk to him, he's just like, "Gotta get a bite to eat, you guys." He's not concerned about the circumstances in the slightest. He's just kind of hungry. But he did. He did make a point later on that people will think better and plan better if they're not feeling hungry, which is very true, <laughs> and. In fact, when you're in a life-threatening situation, identifying sources of food and water is probably a really good first step. So I wouldn't say he's entirely out to lunch, this guy. That's why he's my favorite character. He just wants to eat, and he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Um, All right, let's jump back a little bit because we missed one character before we wrap this up. One of the maybe slightly more robust characters, uh, Bethany Sims. Yeah. I call her a troubled teen with capital T. All my notes, I just referred to her as four non-blondes because that's how she was dressed. That's a reference. It's, this is another example of like prime costume design, which I love because basically her backstory is that she is in, she's a troubled teen and she's worried about arriving in Boston because although she's supposed to visit her aunt, she suspects that she's actually going to be like taken into a rehab center when she arrives. Yeah, because as um, she says... She just takes all the booze and drugs she can get. <laughs> right. Although she doesn't really seem to be jonesing no. for anything for the entire time. So I, she's clearly not, unless there's all kinds of stuff that we're not seeing, I think they probably just couldn't put on TV. But like, where is her drug and alcohol dependency during the like 12 hours that we are watching her in this situation? Where is her anxiety about not being able to acquire or you know replenish any kind of stash that she might have with her or that she's expecting to find like she's clearly does not need to go to rehab her main problem seems to be that she has multiple piercings yeah this dresses quote unquote like urban yeah Um, this is she is she and many of these other characters are just prime examples of just like you could have just jammed some of these characters together because we basically just get these single character traits but have no bearing on it like does her drug addiction matter? Not Apparently not. Like It doesn't no. affect the plot in any way. The only thing that matters is that she smokes cigarettes, which affects the plot. Which anybody could smoke. Of course. It's 1995. But it has to be the troubled teen. She's also about 35, though, right? She at least... Yeah, she's probably in her mid-late tw- 20s. Yeah, she at least girl. looked younger than Elbert. That's true. That's true. Anyway, let's, let's get back to the, the plot here, where all our characters are going to slowly wake up from their naps when uh, blind girl uh, Dinah starts screaming because she wakes up early, can't find her aunt, finds a wig on a seat, <laughs> and assumes it's a scalped individual. <laughs> yeah, she's stupid, huh? No, I felt, I felt bad for Did her. You? I could see how that would be frightening. Yeah. If you're on a plane and you're woken up by a blind girl screaming because she's touched some hair, come on, throw it out of the plane. Ah, she's missing her aunt and she's all by herself. What I like is she starts screaming, which wakes up old uh, Captain Angle. And he like runs through the plane to comfort her and does not notice the plane is entirely empty until finally he's like, stands up. He's like, oh, wait a minute. Where is everybody? I'm like, dude, you just walk through an entire empty plane. How did you not know? There are so many moments where people don't notice stuff for seven beats too long. Um, but what's on the plane after they wake up is that everyone's gone, but there are all these like personal items are left. But like, it seems random what's left over. Like, what what is happening there? Because it's not like clothes are everywhere. It's just like it's bits and bobs, bits and bobs. Well, it's it's jewelry and like, like hair stuff, <laughs> and obviously they're they're personal items. Part of a denture is left. Yeah, but and also stuff from inside people's bodies. So like bridge work, dentures, pacemakers. Um, but but no clothing, as you remarked. So I'm not quite sure where the distinction it comes in there. It just seemed odd. Like it was like we were supposed to take some information out of what was left behind, but then eventually it's just like, oh, it didn't matter. Like it just 
random what was left behind. I really do think the point was just to be like, oh, isn't that weird? And with with never having the um, the expectation that they're going to answer it. It's just like, that's odd. What an odd scenario. It's true. And what I like about all these characters as they wake up and find this, you know, plane in midair, no one's piloting it, everyone's gone. Everyone other than Toomey, who is like a basket case, everyone else is just like super cash about the whole situation. <laughs> well, they all they all just assume, which is quite a big assumption to make. They assume that the plane landed Everybody got off, then the plane took off again, and they're still flying, and that, that they just somehow got left because they were sleeping. That's true. That's one of the things that novelist Bob Jenkins kind of does in this, in this pilot is he's, he's perpetually, because he's, he's an imaginative author, he's perpetually like coming up with scenarios that might have happened. And this is a scene where he takes that young Albert kid aside, and he's just like, Albert, think about this conspiracy with me, dear boy. Uh, imagine, if you will, that we are lab rats in a government experiment where they've put us on a plane to see what we will do. And then, like, he starts freaking Albert out. He's just like... And it's so elaborate. He yeah, talks about the, them having put hip, hypnotic gas through the air system and people fall asleep except for the pilot who's wearing a gas mask. And then they land the plane and then they take off some of the people and they leave the rest. And then the pilot gets back on and then they clear the air. And then the pilot, and his whole theory is that the pilot character, the David Morse character is in on it. He's yeah, faking it. And it's, But it's just massively, like for, for your first guess... <laughs> Of what's what like you wake up there's this weird situation you're like okay what could have happened this is his first well guess. here's the best part about it too is he's telling this all to albert he's freaking albert out albert's now a scared of the pilot who's on this plane and then when he gets to the end of this theory he's like well my dear boy it's wrong my theory it doesn't make any sense and i'm just like well, why did you spend 10 minutes telling this kid this theory then? yeah he's constantly saying stuff that is basically just designed i think with it it's designed to like build tension but then not be fulfilled so he'll he'll create an elaborate theory and then be like but that's wrong or someone else will say something and he'll be like you're entirely wrong ma'am but then not explain why or what he meant or what she's wrong about i really liked him gaslighting this albert kid for 10 minutes <laughs> freaking about and he'd be like eh, but it's not that kid don't worry i'm like why did you do that um Captain Angle, though, does finally get into the cockpit. He takes over flying the plane. And, of course, they discover there's nobody answering radio broadcasts. Or, as he'll say, that dog won't bark. Is that what he said? Yeah, he's got a lot of down-home phrases he says when he has to, like, answer questions. He's like, is anyone on the radio? That dog won't bark, my friend. <laughs> I like that. There's a lot of... Actually, there was this this one sequence where they're in the cockpit where the pilot is trying to hail all sorts of different communications arrays. Like he's trying different airports, he's trying different military channels, he's trying various types of navigation like centers and beacons that are all over the place. And that was actually pretty interesting. There's quite a, a bit of stuff in this early part of the show that's... I. I don't know quite what to call it, but I sort of like called it like procedural porn. Yeah, well, that's like that's a hundred percent it. That's his his thing. He's very procedural off the top. Yeah, and it's very much like what would happen. And and the thing that I just want to, it's a little bit of an aside, but I did was thinking about this a lot while I was watching this. So I worked on a documentary a, a few years ago that was based around like 9-11 and all of the planes having to land in Newfoundland, which is like the come from away story that people are kind of familiar with now because of the musical. But the the angle of the documentary was it was about the air traffic controllers in this tiny airport in Gander, Newfoundland. And it also was about the pilots and the passengers that were on these planes. And it was mainly about their actual process of like from when they were flying and they found out that they couldn't go to the destination that they had planned, whether they were a transatlantic flight or whatever, and then the process of getting them to landing. So it was basically all about this exact type of anticipation that is in the Langoliers, which is something has happened and we don't know what it is. Because even the pilots weren't told, like they, they were told that there was a national emergency, that airspace was closed and that they were going to have to land in Canada. And that was it. They didn't know if there was a nuclear explosion. They didn't know if there had been some kind of radiation incident. Like nobody had any idea until they actually landed and were able to get more information. So this whole sequence that's happening where they're trying to hail all of these different like NORAD like command centers and stuff reminds me a lot of actually this story and the kind of fear that these folks are feeling in the cockpit where they're they're as they're deciding that they're going to land and they don't know what's going to be below the clouds like they don't know what they're going to see 
when they go below the cloud cover and actually are able to see land. Like they don't know if it's going to be devastated by a nuclear holocaust. They don't know if there's going to be anything left. Um, it actually felt like kind of real because I was like, oh, I saw this doc. I did this documentary and these, this is actually how these people felt is they didn't know if they were going to land and find out that like the United States was half irradiated. Anyway, I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. And like, I know this is a cheesy, like pre 9-11 flight story, but I think there's some stuff in there that actually I will say relevant. that what I noticed, I mean, I will disagree that it was all that tense, but <laughs> I will say it did feel like that someone did way too much research on how planes work because there are long sequences where we watch him yeah. like flip switches and like it seems authentic to me like i definitely yeah. feel like someone spent a lot of time being like how would this happen let's write it all down even up to like how do you land a plane like we watch him go through the procedure for quite some time so i do feel like that procedural element was heavily researched it was and i think somebody really liked it even to the point of when they do land of like letting down the emergency slide <laughs> like it's all of these things that I think a lot of people would have imagined. Like, what would happen if? What would the what would they do? And then they were like, we're going to put this in a miniseries. Personally, I think I'd be more interested if these characters were a little more fleshed out and there was a little less uh, uh, toggle switching, you know? Absolutely. But yes, I mean, the basic plot point here is that they they're can't see anything on the ground. No one's answering. Like, there's no lights in Denver when they fly over it. So they don't know what to do. And basically, Captain Angle's like, well... It's not going to be safe to land in Boston. It's one of the busiest airports in the world. Let's redirect to that Stephen King staple town, <laughs> Bangor, Maine. Gotta go to Maine. Which I love because they actually shot at the Bangor, Maine airport. It must have been a hot day for Bangor, Maine. <laughs> and of course, you know, our hot-headed friend Toomey is just like so mad about it. He, he, bought, he bought a ticket to Boston and he wants to go to Boston. But you know, let me ask you this and not to get too off track. He has a meeting at nine o'clock. That's what he keeps saying, right? He's doing the overnight, the red eye, so he can arrive at Boston for this meeting. But is it because he's hoping he's going to get fired because he lost the money? Because if he just lost $43 million purposely, he's guaranteed already lost his job, whether he makes it to that meeting or not, and he's probably going to go to jail. So I didn't know why it was so important he went to that meeting. It's because he wanted to get fired in person? I didn't understand that either because it was, yeah, it was two conflicting kind of purposes yeah. of this. On the one hand, it was an important meeting. He's a businessman, mm -hmm. and I'm putting all this in air quotes, a businessman with an important meeting. On the other hand, he's already explained that he's torpedoed himself. So Yeah, it's, a, it's it. an error, I think, in the concept because Toomey is supposed to be a character who hates the life he has and wants to get out of it so desperately that he will like make such a huge sacrifice and destroy his career. But he's already done that, so he shouldn't be fretting anymore. He should be relieved at this point because he has, in fact, mm -hmm. ended the thing he hated. Like, the idea that he's this tense over this meeting, it doesn't make sense. Like, he has done, he's already done the thing that would trigger relief for his character. So, I mean, he shouldn't even have got on the plane. It's like, what, what's the point? They could have just called and said, you lose the money. He's like, yep, fire me. Like, why does he even have to show up? Yeah, it is a problem for that character because we're supposed to think he's like on edge about to break down. But the breakdown's already happened. He should be past it. He should be in a relief stage. <laughs> Yeah, unless he had all he had plans to kind of do something to the folks at the meeting. Mm, maybe that's true. Like if he was going to like reveal some ex more secrets or you know what he's really going to do to them. I know. <laughs> Jordan, you remember Generation X? <laughs> I know what you're going to say. <laughs> he's going to show up at that meeting and make the whole board fart. Yeah, yeah. What? Yeah, that was such a bad movie. <laughs> that was Jane. That was this X Men movie we watched, where someone could go into your dreams, and the villain's big plan was to show up at a board <laughs> meeting and make all the board members fart. <laughs> that sounds like an excellent dastardly plan. I have to say. <laughs> anyway, um, the whole point of Tommy, uh, Tommy being upset about he's not going to get to Boston. I bring this up because he gets starts getting agitated and yelling at everyone again. I think literally every character in the fl flight now threatens to beat him up. It's just like nobody likes him. They all want to kick him. Yeah. He is by this point the most annoying character yeah. that I've probably ever seen on television ever. As a viewer, I wanted to beat him up. It was, yeah. They definitely go too far because they want you to hate him, but it's to the point where you're actually irritated when he's on the screen. And I'm, I'm sure old Belky hated doing it too because it's just like, it's too much, guys. And while he's having this fit, uh, Toomey starts having like visions like he, he when he looks at, at all the other characters their faces kind of look like melted wax and they're lit with like blue and red light they're like weird melty monsters suddenly and what's her face can see it though too old uh, what's her face Dinah Shore what's her name yeah well, she can see it because he can see it so I think she's reading his mind as he 
has the vision. Her shining has kicked up a notch and she's now able to see through his eyes. And what I thought was a big missed opportunity here is like she is if we know she's seeing what he's seeing and we're seeing his POV of all these milted faces. The two characters, the little girl and Tommy, make eye contact at one point while he's having this fit. But we never get to see her seeing herself. Like, I thought there was going to be this moment where she saw a monster's version of herself, but they never do it. But you, oh. you have that opportunity because they do do a scene where they lock eyes. And I'm like, oh, well, she's going to see this nightmare of herself. But then, like, it cuts and she's just like, turns, she just turns to the teacher and she's like, he thinks we're monsters. And she's like, no, 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 she doesn't, little girl. You're dumb. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like this is where he starts ripping paper, trying to keep himself calm. And we're supposed to think Tommy has either, is he having visions of something more important? Or is this just like some indication he's having a breakdown? That's never clear to me. But they do finally get down to Bangor. They they descend through this, uh, this, this layer of clouds, unsure what they're going to see. And old hitman Nick starts worrying, since he's such a sci-fi fan, are they going to find a time-space warp? alien raiding parties another dimension where the rocky mountains are in upstate new york what could be down there (laughs) nothing these are the options he came up with i was just like what um but there is nothing down there they come through the clouds deal with a little bit of turbulence land completely safety at an empty bangor airport and then use the inflatable slide to exit gotta love the inflatable slide i was very jealous i always want to slide down one of those yeah everyone does do you notice how the captain took his shoes off and then went down the slide and then put his shoes back on? I didn't notice that. I thought that was a great tip. <laughs> That's a great tip. That's funny. What I noticed was that we cut to that inflatable slide and the only actor who gets to use it is the captain. Everyone else is waiting down there. And I'm just like, if I was an actor on this movie and I showed up to this day and they're like, oh no, only the captain goes down the slide for the shot. I would have been fucking infuriated. I'd go down head first like I was on Crocodile Mile. <laughs> Just waiting to go in the pool at the bottom. Um, well, this is where I started to be like, oh, when they were landing the plane and stuff, I'm like, well, they spent a lot of money on this. Because this is pre, I mean, obviously you could do um, special effects with miniatures, but this is generally pre-CG. So they had a plane, a legit real plane with that was fully done up with a decal that said American Pride, named the airline on the tail, that they physically landed at this airport for the landing shots. I looked, I was watching it. I'm like, no, this is not a fake plane. They've put the decal on. This isn't CG. They had a whole plane. They did. I don't know how much of the flying stuff was actually that plane. That might've been, some of that might've been model work, but it was quite good. Their aerial shots look great. I do think it's model work for some of the flight stuff because some of it doesn't quite sync, but nonetheless, it still looks really good. They certainly spent money on like, Making a, a plane look like authentic, it's authentically in the air. That's where they put their money. Yeah. <laughs> and then they legit landed this plane that they had decked out with the external decals. So they they like paid for all of that. And they had a real plane with an emergency slide and them all coming out. Like there are so many ways that you could imagine this, especially for a TV movie. Imagine faking a lot of these elements and they chose not to. They chose to throw a ton of money at it and do a legit thing, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, but what's something they noticed immediately when they got off the plane? Because everything on the ground seems off, they say, but not in a way the viewer is allowed to perceive, only in a way that can be described by characters. <laughs> that is correct. They describe that the air seems strange, that there's no smells, and of course everything's quiet. There's no bird sounds. There's no animals. There's nothing like that. Even everything- their own footsteps seem muted. <laughs> muted what did they say this is where it was some some really great writing they said the footsteps sound weak as if they have no strength it's like (laughs) thanks for that awesome piece of writing buddy like this this is the craziest part to me is like so much money spent on this long plane sequence where we're given very authentic airline stuff happening and then we get to the get off the ground and you're just like describing what would could be a place where you like build some crazy sound design to imply something's very off here. But no, like, let's just have the character tell you, oh, you can't hear it at home, but like, it sounds weird here. Yeah. Or, or you know what? You know what's weird? We can't hear anything. Can you hear anything? No, you can't hear anything either. It's not your TV. It's just that there's nothing here. I'm like, come up with some cool ideas for some sound design for this weird, empty world. Don't just like have characters be like, oh, yeah, it's weird. Trust us. If you were here, you'd agree. (laughs) Now, to be fair, later on, they do create some interesting sound design near the climax of the episode. 
No, we'll we get, get that we'll yet. debate that when we. <laughs> uh, they enter the airport via luggage conveyor belt again. A dream. Well, how much fun would it be to climb through a luggage <laughs> conveyor belt? <laughs> These are the highest points for me. I want to slide down an airport's an airplane slide. Want to climb on a luggage conveyor belt. Uh, and they enter a very classical, boring regional airport. I had such nostalgia for this boring old airport. I used to fly into these all the time as a kid going to visit my grandparents. I'm just like, oh, I know what this is. You just have nowhere to go. There's one restaurant. It's amazing. Did you guys note what the uh, the restaurant cafe was called? No. No. Cloud Cafe. Oh. Really? I like that. Cafe. It sounds very soothing. It sounds kind of sci-fi too. Yeah, Cloud like, Cafe. Like it sounds like a, yeah, like a bit of a, like a total recall kind mm-hmm. of thing. All of the clocks inside of this airport have stopped at 4.07 a.m. And what that means to the plot of the movie is that they had been theorizing perhaps that because they were asleep, that's why nothing happened to them. But if that's true, everyone in Bangor, Maine should have been asleep. And where are they now? Well, not at the airport. That's sure. <laughs> Yeah, they're just, yeah, it's like, oh, the airport was just closed down. Oh, case closed. <laughs> and of course, um, our blind girl, uh, Dinah, because of her heightened senses from her blindness, she hears something in the distance. She hears a strange noise. And how does she sub- describe that noise? Anyone? I don't know. What does she say? She's just like, it sounds like something. Oh, no. I know what she says. R- Rice Krispies. Yeah. It sounds oh, like yeah, Rice, Rice Krispies, Krispies in milk. <laughs> in milk. Yeah. Not before. Because as everyone knows, before you put the milk, it sounds like nothing. That's right. And then she c- c- continues to say, it's a very scary sound. It's getting closer. I'm just like, uh, kid, Rice Krispies in milk is not a scary sound. <laughs> But it's 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 kind of an interesting. I mean, I don't hate on this aspect of it. Is like this idea that there's this sound of an unknown threat that's over the bank of the hill. So they look, they can't see it, but it's coming, and it has a sound that's familiar, like the, the like a like a breakfast cereal, but also terrifying. Like those, I think that idea is. Interesting. I think in theory that does work. I just I was just a little like. Don't describe the thing that you're going to tell me is scary as Rice Krispies and milk. <laughs> Did it seem odd to anyone else that we don't get to hear the Rice Krispie sound? We do, but we do at, at the, the end. end. Do we? It's just static. It just sounds like static. Oh, so it doesn't sound like Rice Krispies. I disagree. I would not say that. I think it's actually, a, it's a sound that's, we'll get there. It's a sound that's now been overused, but at the time, I think it was probably more interesting than it seems now. I I honestly, it ver- it barely registered for my me. <laughs> really? Yeah, I didn't really hear it. Um, oh, well, after all of the buildup, I was waiting to hear the sound. And you hear it. And you guys need to rewatch the last five minutes. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, along the way, while they're exploring this airport, they they lose crazy old Toomey. He wanders off to have some hallucinatory conversations with his dad and, of course, find a poorly secured gun somewhere. He goes into a random locker, finds a gun. His dad, instead of just having being in a hallucination flashback, shows up, starts slapping him, throwing <laughs> him to the ground. Craig Toomey's like, why can't you love me and leave me alone? Like, just two conflicting ideas that clearly don't go together. Either he wants to be loved by his father or be left alone. Wouldn't that be funny, though, if his dad was like, pick one? (laughs) (laughs) Um, The rest of the gang, this is where Hungry Guy says we got to eat something so we can think clearly. They head up to that cloud restaurant and uh, Hungry Guy is so disappointed to find out all the food is tasteless and the beers are flat. Yeah. And this is, yeah, right around the time that the Dean Stockwell start is in the process of doing his, well, I guess the whole time he's been in the process of doing this sort of Sherlock Holmes, I deduce, dear boy, that X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And so he's, every time something happens, like, oh, the food is tasteless. He's like, it's not. Or he says, the food is spoiled. And Dean Stockwell's like, it's not spoiled. It's just empty or something like he has like he's just sort of is yeah he, to he's become this says. de facto leader who's forming this theory because as you mentioned bettany smokes and she's able to light her cigarettes with a matches she brought with her but the matches seem to be dulling and the matches they find in the airport no longer work the food doesn't it tastes flat or uh without things so he started coming up with this theory that everything in this world is running out of juice if you will like everything like it's winding down like a clock i believe he says and uh, in order to confirm, I guess, this theory that everything's losing its power in the world, this is when Toomey shows up with uh, with his gun and like he's like taking hostages and he ends up shooting old Albert, the kid, in the chest. But uh, the bullet just bounces off his chest because the gunpowder has no momentum anymore. Yeah, the gunpowder doesn't ignite. So all that ends up happening is like the jack or whatever, like hits the bullet. So the bullet comes out of the barrel, but just like 
and falls down. Taps old Albert in the chest. Still, yeah. Albert still falls to the ground and screams like he's been shot, but he's like, oh, wait, I'm fine. I don't want to get too uh, caught in the weeds here, but does it work that the gunpowder doesn't work, but the mechanism of the gun still does? I think the idea is that chemicals don't work. Oh, so, okay, maybe you're right. Right? So anything that has, requires a chemical reaction like fuel or matches or the or gunpowder is not going to work, but a mechanical thing is still going to move. And I think we're supposed to get the implication that like it's the chemicals are getting weaker and weaker and they're at a point where like there's still like a slight amount of reaction that can happen, but it's just like not much. Like we're about to lose all of that chemical right. reaction soon. Um, right. But like all of this kind of happens to like really reinforce this idea that like Things are getting weaker. Sounds, chemical reactions, the taste of food is getting weaker. And this is so Bob can propose his theory for what's happening. And what I, I think we're supposed to assume is the truth of this world is when they flew through the Aurora Borealis, they also flew through a time rip, which sent them back in time something like maybe 15 minutes, Bob figures. He figures that's about the time. And he says, what this tells us is that time travel is possible, but you can't change history. And he provides the example of you couldn't go back and stop the JFK assassination and then explains the exact plot to a Stephen King novel he'd write right. 10 years later. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen King was clearly obsessed with this idea because he was putting it in all of his stuff beforehand. It's just very funny to hear him describe the plot too. I believe the novel is called 11 mm-hmm. which yeah. later like, also would be a TV miniseries. <laughs> that's right. He's like, and you cannot go back to November 22nd, 1963 to the book depository and stop the assassination of... like it, it's, it's the old is the first example he comes up with. Clearly, the most important one because if anyone had access to time travel, that is the absolute first thing that any any of us, right? I mean, guys, like if you had time travel, wouldn't that be the first thing you did? Is go back and stop the Kennedy assassination? It's funny. It is such an overused thing in anything with time travel. People are always like, "We have to stop the Kennedy assassination." And no offense to John F. Kennedy, that is not my first stop. Yeah, I think you're going to go back to, what, 1980 and kiss your mom at prom? No, I'm going <laughs> I'm going back to 1995, and I'm going to look through the window and watch young little Jane watch Langoliers for the first time and just see how surprised she is and shocked and excited and, excited. and frightened and then get arrested because I'm looking into a window at a 13-year-old. <laughs> like, who is this creepazoid? Yeah. Um, but yeah, basically, Bob has basically figured out they've traveled back in time. But when you travel back, you just travel to an empty world that's just winding down into oblivion, and they're facing oblivion now. And it's at this point that Rice Krispie sound starts getting louder, and uh, they're standing at a window, looking over the hills, wondering what this sound is coming for them. And they turn to the captain and say, you have to get us out of here. We have to fly back to that time rip and get back to our time. And he says, how do you do that when you're in a world where jet fuel doesn't work? Dun, dun, dun. And we end with these poor characters staring out into the distance, wondering when these Langoliers are finally going to fucking get here. And the sound is building and building. And it's a it's a sound build that it's it's difficult to describe, but it does. Have no, it's not. Like it's Rice under, Krispies. It's an under, <laughs> underlying crackling static sound, but also um, a, a whispering. I guess there's like a bit of a whisper like, to there's it. There's a lot of whispering. There's like a like that kind of thing, like overlapping sounds. So it feels organic um like it feels like it's alive as opposed to it just being some kind of mechanical it's a mix of like a mechanical static and like a living sound that then grows and grows and this is this is a part that i really remember like the the one of my strongest memories of originally watching this show was these moments of them standing at the windows of this airport looking out over these hills that kind of rise and you can't really see more than about like a kilometer beyond the airport. And there are these hydro towers that run a hydro line up the crest of this hill and over the hill. And you can hear from behind, there's this horrible threatening entity that is approaching. And that scared the crap out of me. And I I don't know. I mean, I guess it's not scary anymore. It wasn't very well done, but I remember that sequence, like, feeling really strongly that it was very I don't think you're wrong that, like, in theory, these pieces probably could be very terrifying. And I think as probably you as a child, it was probably new to you and, and very, and like, you know, hitting you in the spot you've never seen this before. I think just, you know, obviously us watching it now, we're watching it and, like, the execution maybe leaves something to be desired. Because I think you're right, like, them not knowing what they're going to descend into on a plane into who knows what, with the right execution, that could be a very tense moment, a very scary moment. 
Yeah. I think what we're saying is a lot of this is undercut by the somewhat plodding nature and pace of the movie mixed with the blase reaction of all the characters. Yeah. There's just that feeling of tension isn't very palpable because they're all sort of like, well, I guess we'll walk around. Well, and it, it almost feels like the problem is they're trying to do such a direct translation from the book that it just doesn't have the same, I assume, same sort of gripping feeling. You know, that page turning thing that Stephen King is very good at is lacking in this uh, adaptation. Yeah, and I think, I mean, frankly, this is not a two-episode miniseries length of story. Like, you know, this is, if this had been a feat, because if you think about it, so each half, episode one is 90 minutes, not counting commercials, and episode two is similar. So you've got basically a three-hour movie here. If you were actually cutting this as a feature, you could cut out so much. Even if this is how they wrote it and how they shot it, you could cut out so much, bring the thing down to 90 minutes, and it would feel tight, and you would probably overcome a not all of these problems, but a lot of the problems. This could probably be a half hour, I I would say. (laughs) Well, it probably could be. Well, I mean, I, you know, I I sort of was like, well, it could also just be like one episode of The Outer Limits, right? One Mm. 40-minute episode of The Outer Limits or The Twilight Zone or whatever. Um, But yeah, they're stuck with, they're stuck. They had to fill two hour and a half slots, so they can't cut anything. They just have these like really slow moments that go on and on. I mean, truly this first hour and a half is basically the first act of a movie. Like you get in a plane something weird happens you land and now you know what the problem is now you have to go solve it but like they extend it for an hour and a half and i think you're right jordan i think the key thing for the man who wrote and directed this is he wanted to make a very direct adaptation of that story and i think that's what he aimed to do so as a result he's cut as little as he can out of it but it doesn't he hasn't filled in the rest like he hasn't figured out how to make that tense or exciting he's just like achieved the accomplishment of turning the entire story into a screenplay i think the most successful adaptations of stephen king are ones where they go off a little bit into their own direction and find the essence of the story or find what's interesting within you know a 900 page book i know this is not that big but and i personally feel like the ones that are less successful are these sort of direct adaptations where they're like well we all have the dialogues already written and we know everything that happens and it's like but it i don't know he has really interesting premises stephen king and i think uh, that always makes it for an interesting idea of a movie but it's very hard to have that same sort of page turning feeling when you're making a direct adaptation like this i think you have to just find the interesting characters or the interesting plot points and this just is not that no, and I, there are very few Stephen King adaptations that are actually any good at all. I would agree. You know, and 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 there tend to be the quality of the ad- adaptation is inversely proportional to how close they went to the book. Because yeah. any adaptation that follows that follows the stories, the closer they follow the stories, the worse it is. Well, I mean, every single a, a good example is I don't know if you either of you watched the TV movie uh, The Shining with Stephen Weber that Luke you mentioned in the beginning. I watched that and I watched the uh, you know the one Stephen King hates, the one that everyone knows, the Jack Nicholson, and they're not even comparable at all. Like the Stephen Weber one is I think like three four hours long, and I'm sure it's much more like the book, but it is boring as anything. It's just it just doesn't work. And what worked was. What uh, what's his face? Uh, Stanley Cooper. What Stanley Cooper put together, which was take the essence, of the idea, and like if you don't feel dread watching The Shining, you feel that tension the entire movie, as opposed to this, you know. Yeah, I, I we watched Doctor Sleep a little while ago that came, you know, the sequel to The Shining as well, and that was a movie that followed the book and was too long and really cheap. It had Ewan McGregor in it, like it wasn't a problem of actors, and it had some well-directed sequences, but it was just like the whole story of this is too long and too convoluted and cheesy at parts. And I'm sure it played much better in a book, but in a movie, as soon as you start visualizing some of these characters, I don't know, it just, I don't want to go off on a tangent about it, but it's the majority, I've I've not seen very many good Stephen King adaptations at all. And this, this falls under the negative. Well, on that thought, um, any any final thoughts or should we get into the writings? Let's write these. Or write this, I suppose. Jane, what do you want to give the first part of the Langoliers? I'm so torn because I had such a place in my heart for it. Um, but it, it was really bad. Um, but I like the concept. This is a tough one. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a five. A five. All right. Yeah, I get it right in the middle with a five. I'll, I'll go next, I guess. Why not? Um, listen, it's not a great TV movie by any means. It's, it's very slow. It just moves along at its own pace. But weirdly, 
if you just want to like sit back and let its sleepy pace wash over you i was just like this is fine i don't care this is fine i don't mind watching these people just meander around and maybe it was just the mood i was in but like i just sat there and let it wash over me interesting idea being in this plane by yourself i really was excited to get down to that empty airport because i just like i know it's cheap but i actually do like seeing an empty world that still works for me i'm gonna also give it a five nice we're gonna have a rare trifecta because i'm also gonna give it a five for i think all the same reasons you both said and and luke to your point i think maybe i also was just in the mindset of like Eh, let's just watch this, see what goes. Because I know I really didn't want to watch this thing because the last time I tried, honestly, I got through about 10 minutes and I said, this is the most boring thing I've ever seen. And I turned it off and then vowed never to watch it again. But then but I was that it. before you started doing this podcast, Jordan, and have had to watch a great quantity of ridiculous stuff? You might have an interesting point. I think that is probably what it is, is that in retrospect, I mean, this could be much worse. We could be watching, I don't know, pick anything you know that what we've was seen. that one you guys made me watch last time with this weird space show with the guy the comedy space show quark yes quark luke oh love quark God. that's not what the fans say <laughs> <laughs> everyone loved quark he was a garbage guy in space what's not to love what a concept oh that show was like one of the most sexist things I've ever seen. <laughs> so bad. At least this wasn't that. I think that's why mm. it gets a vibe. Well, I mean, I guess it's got that going for it. Having your characters so one-dimensional that they can't even come up with sexism. <laughs> <laughs> this is an interesting setup for next week's episode because we're hitting right down, right down the middle of a five on this. And are they going to knock it out of the park? Are they going to? Well, next week will be all action. Like next week is going to be like the payoff because all we have is set up now. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm super excited. I'm going to watch the second half. I, I debated whether to watch the second half before we had this talk, but I didn't want to accidentally be polluted by what was going to happen because it's been so long since I've seen it. So I thought I'll just wait. And now that we're f finishing this recording of this episode, I can go and watch the second half, which I'm actually quite excited to do. I well, think. to tease next week, we're actually bookending this. Uh, Jane, you're our guest this week. Next week, your husband, Steve, will return to finish this off. So he'll have seen both halves now. That's so right. it, it'll be it'll be interesting. Maybe you, maybe at the end, you can stick your head in and be like, I loved it. <laughs> oh, cool. I will. I will come and I'll just sort of make some noise in the background. Be like, be like you guys, I changed my mind. Tens, all right. <laughs> you never know. It, stranger things have happened. Uh, Jane, thank you so much for joining us. It was uh, fun having you back. Thanks. It was great to be back. I'm still a big fan of the show. And uh, yeah, I hope that one day we can go back to recording in person. But for now, you know. This works for now, I suppose. Um, and yeah, that about wraps it up. So listener, you can email us at continuumdrag at gmail.com if you saw this as a small child and were terrified just like Jane. And of course, on Instagram and Twitter, we're going to have some clips from the show. I think we'll find some some weird stuff, at least mild, minorly for this. Certainly Toomey's visions, probably Toomey's dad yelling at him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some close-ups of Toomey sweating. <laughs> Not too many, though. You don't want to turn people off. It's going to be Toomey heavy, I think. Very Toomey heavy. <laughs> Uh, we're going to have to pay Gordon Pinchot royalties for this. Yeah, say what you will. He really went for it. It's true. He's working hard. That wraps it up for this week. Jordan, I'll see you next week. See you then. Bye, guys. Continuum Drag is recorded in Toronto, Ontario. Theme music by James Rex Seedler. Produced by Jordan Dulloch and Luke Black. Special thanks to Aaron Hughes.